I'm Kevin Bachman. On this episode of Background Check Radio, the audio replay of last week's webinar on mergers, acquisitions, what it means for your business, and a bet I made that nobody wants to see come true. Stick around. Okay, you're about to hear the audio recording of a webinar I did last week with my iCubed Advisors partners, Jason Morris and Nick Fishman. We also invited Sherry Homa, who's an investment banker and business advisor who's been in our space for for 15 to 20 years. The four of us discussed recent investment activity in our space, First Advantage going public, a few other CRAs announcing their plans to do the same. We also discussed what it means or frankly doesn't mean for you and your businesses. We had a great time, a very enjoyable conversation. So thanks for listening. So thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, looking forward to a great webinar presentation, um, title of which is M&A Whiplash, Analyzing the Latest Background Screening Industry Deals. Uh, if you all have been paying attention, and I imagine you have been, there has been quite a bit of M&A activity uh, over the last just couple of months, let alone uh, since about 2014. Um, and uh, the space is obviously heating up. We thought that this was a timely way to share our thoughts with you and get you up to speed on everything that's going on. Uh, before we get started here, uh, a couple housekeeping issues. Um, we will be recording today's uh, discussion and we'll make that available to everybody uh, over the next couple of days. Um, we'll make it available uh, in, in the form of, uh, we will send everybody an email when it's posted to our blog. Uh, you'll be able to log in and get it there. Um, and then we'll also be recasting it uh, on in podcast form. Um, Kevin, where do they, if they want to uh, get it on the podcast, how do they get it? Any, anywhere you listen to anything audio, Google, Spotify, uh, iTunes, uh, just type it in or search by my name and it'll pop up right away. Great. Okay. Uh, other housekeeping issues. Uh, the uh, the Q&A panel is yours to use uh, if you have questions. Uh, all of our registrants or our attendees today are on mute. Um, so if you do have questions, um, feel free to use the Q&A panel. Uh, depending upon the question, we'll either address it right there and then uh, or shortly thereafter or at the Q&A uh, point at the end of our presentation. A um, couple other uh, housekeeping notes. Uh, this is now the second webinar that we've done under the iCubed advisory uh, arm and umbrella. Um, you're going to see a lot of uh, more IQ branding uh, from Jason, Kevin, and I in the coming weeks. We'll be launching our website shortly. Uh, for those of you that are attending PBSA, we hope that you'll come up, say hello. We're certainly going to be there. We just found out we got a primo sponsorship, and we will now be hosting um, all of the NFL games on Sunday at the conference. So anybody that wants to join us, please come out. Please say hello. Stop by for a minute. Stop by for a game. Whatever you want to do, we'd love. We'll to be see there you. from. Uh, we'll be there from twelve to four in the lobby bar. We'll have the games on, and uh, we'll be sporting our Browns jerseys. When you say twelve to four, though, let's adjust that for Pacific time. We'll probably Pacific be time. there. Yeah, starting at 10, uh, 10 a.m. Uh, Pacific time. Does that sound right? No, that we will be there. Our little thing will happen between twelve and four. Uh, oh, I mean, got I it. So the early games. Again. Yeah, yeah. I guess I should have asked you that question before we went live here. Well, just throw um, up, make up some numbers. That's okay. Something to add it up. Okay. All right. Well, let's Jason get did going. did it for 20 years. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. Exactly. All right. Well, let's, let, let's get going here with the presentation. First, um, let's start out with our panelists. Of course, everybody knows Jason, Kevin, and I, as Jason likes to say, uh, I'm, pretty, I'm a pretty popular guy. People tend to know me. Uh, so we'll, 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 we'll start with our most distinguished guest. And that is uh, Sherry Homa. Uh, we've all known Sherry for a very long time and very pleased that she could join us. Quick bio on Sherry. Um, she has over 25 years of experience working with privately held companies, executing their growth strategies. Uh, she has extensive experience with high growth companies and has advised business owners and boards on strategies to create value and execute their M&A strategy. Uh, she's been following the background screening industry for quite some time now. It's actually been since 2003. And you guys all might recall, um, she is one of the OGs when it comes to uh, <laughs> M&A activity in this space. Uh, she was talking about it before most people uh, were. And, you know, uh, any industry veterans will remember that she was always presenting at these conferences 
um, and has a, a diverse background um, uh, and, and a longstanding background in background screening. Um, Sherry's also the managing partner uh, now and, and founder of South River Advisors, LLC. It's an advisory firm that provides services to privately held technology and service companies. Um, so Sherry, thank you so much for joining us today. We're, we're thrilled to have you. Happy to be here, thanks. Okay, and uh, Kevin, a word from our sponsor. Yeah, I'd like to take a minute and recognize Qualification Check today and thank them for sponsoring. Uh, Qualification Check is a world leader in the verification of academic and professional qualifications. And they have a global coverage of over 190 countries and 40,000 institutions. Headquartered in London with a presence on four continents, they use an intuitive cloud-based platform to simplify the process of verifications globally. They provide secure integrations with thousands of institutions, ensuring digital primary source verification of your candidates, no matter where they graduated. They provide multiple checks, including academic, employment, and professional certificates and licenses. Fully auditable reporting and compliance with national and local data laws, including GDPR, qualification check ensures you can consistently meet your customer's service level agreements. So thanks to them today. And by the way, if you wanna learn more about sponsoring, an iCube webinar, find Jason Nicker, myself. Um, about 40% of this audience, by the way, um, are business owners or C-suite leaders. 70% of a typical webinar for us are at a director level and above. We average about two to 300 registrations and uh, a similar number of podcast downloads. So again, just find us if you'd like to learn more. So what, okay. do, we, what, do, we, what do we tackle in today? Um, we're gonna discuss the latest comings and goings. What's the scuttlebutt? What are we hearing? Does it touch your world at all? It, it might not hit you directly, but maybe it does and you just don't know it yet. We'll get into that today. Um, there's a lot of talk lately about size and not like that, Nick and Jason, perverts. Uh, how, how big is <laughs> our space? Come from? <laughs> how big is our space? How much of it is real? How much of it's a future opportunity? Um, have buyers and sellers aligned more on price? What does a buyer see you as? What is a seller value? And, uh, and, and lastly, and this is where we really value Sherry's insight, are we going to take a breather or, or are we just ramping up? And uh, so before we dive into this, time for our shout outs. Um, and, and thanks to those of you who let us know that you really like these because we are going to add this as a segment going forward where each of us take a minute to kind of recognize um, a CRA or someone in our space that, that we kind of admire from afar. Today, I want to give my shout out to Accurate. Uh, I've been pretty impressed with their talent acquisition strategy the last 12, 18, 24 months. Um, a lot of times when, I, when I'm brought into a CRA, first thing I look for are the background checkers, the subject matter experts. I, I don't judge. Some shops are heavy on tech and product development, but maybe have a lighter bench of industry experts. Some do it the other way around. A accurate is, is uh, kind of doing both at the same time. And um, I'm just really impressed with some of the industry hires they've, they've made lately. Um, I think they're, they're positioning themselves very well. Uh, Nick, what about you? Yeah, so uh, my shout outs are going to go to a few companies. And uh, those are those that uh, were recently highlighted on the Inc. 5000 fastest growing companies list. Uh, this might not be an all inclusive list, uh, but uh, those that I recognized and let me know if I miss anybody, please. Accurate background, data facts, verified first, crim check and VCheck Global, very, uh, very hearty congratulations to you. Um, that is a very nice feather in your cap. Jason? And my shout out is very timely and hot off the presses. It goes to Checker. Uh, Checker just announced today their Series E. They raised $250 million, giving them a, I'll pause, $4.6 billion with a B dollar valuation. Uh, they are a true unicorn. I don't know what's above a unicorn, maybe a double unicorn uh, in the truest sense. Uh, they, they've been killing it. Um, they've grown, they've textbook grown uh, like a startup would, um, and they've caused uh, true disruption in the industry. Uh, and that leads to this $13 billion question. Uh, for a long time, we've been throwing around this $3 billion uh, uh, industry valuation as far as what the TAM is for the entire industry. And if you look at uh, some of the S1s that have come out, specifically First Advantage, uh, they're looking at this as a $13 billion industry. And if you look at the domestic screening, they have it around $5 billion, but 
everybody's very bullish on uh, the post hiring um, products and the international. So we are seeing um, uh, the bigger companies moving towards this, this larger TAM or total addressable market of $13 billion. Um, and there are untapped markets here. So it's a matter of, can, can we attain it as an industry? Uh, another little plug, um, and this is the first time that we're announcing this, uh, the three of us uh, have been working on something for about a year and we'll probably be make it available in the next six months, but we've been working on an industry study, uh, most, more specifically for private equity or investment bankers that are looking at the industry, but it's a full study of the entire industry, including all the players, uh, all the three or 400 uh, CRAs that are out there, their company size, platforms that they're on, all that stuff that we were are putting into a report and analyzing, really analyzing the shit out of the industry. Uh, for, for people looking to make uh, uh, movements into the industry. So more news on that coming soon. And certainly hope there are no kids in the audience. Um, <laughs> there, I, I, I've, got, I've got a couple uh, comments here on, um, on, on this new uh, total addressable market and the valuations. So, you know, uh, the, the $5 billion domestic pre-employment screening, that really shouldn't be any new news to anybody that's on this call. That number, as Jason talked about, you know, as long as we saw it reported for years was anywhere between 2 to $3 billion. And it's certainly grown since that time. So um, I, I think that that $5 billion um, assessment is probably on. Um, I think it's a little high. I think it's probably more around the low, the, the low fours, but well, we'll I, get I have some, finish. I have some reasons actually. I think that that might be that I'll share in a, in a, in a couple seconds here. Um, again, the international uh, market, not going to argue with that number. I think that number is a little high compared to where it is right now, but maybe it's aspirational. Um, that's fine. Where I really thought that we could dig in. And by the way, if you guys want to pull back to the other direction too, feel free to do that. Um, but I want to go to these other areas, the $4 billion domestic employment um, monitoring uh, space. Um, so I am amazed uh, that the valuations on this are so high right now. It doesn't mean that right now that industry is worth $4 billion dollars Again, I think it's aspirational that it could get to $4 billion. Um, there are a lot of services that right now companies are already monitoring. And here's where I believe it actually ties back to the $5 billion, Jason, is that you know post-hire credit monitoring, post-hire MVR monitoring, post-hire drug, post-hire license, um, even post-hire interval-based background checks, I actually think are priced in the pre-employment side. So the question is, where is that additional monitoring coming from? And is the market really that big? How long will it take for us to get there? We've talked a lot about um, continuous criminal monitoring. Um, I, I, I would say that we're all big advocates for it, but we have not yet seen great evidence that there is a tremendous opportunity right now um, for the, the continuous monitoring. Um, and the other thing that we questioned too, and I'm going to shut up in a second here, um, is are CRAs capable of reaching that market? Because I believe that the buyer for post-hire monitoring is a different buyer than the yes. normal HR buyer that is buying other stuff. Correct. I'll pause. Guys, please react. Yeah, I, I um, and as we look at this, so these figures come from a firm called Stacks, and they were part of First Advantages filings, and they broke this down into the current market at six billion and the the white space, the available market, the opportunity, as an additional seven billion. So I'm gonna I'm gonna riff here for a minute. Uh, if and and Nick, I I, I share your comments around post hire monitoring. Listen, if post hire monitoring becomes eighty percent of pre hire screening, I'll streak naked through the PBSA exhibit hall. Wow. Um, you heard it here first. You know, be careful what you wish for, people. But these, you know, these are also loosely defined words, and I do think there's a ton of opportunity. But it, it comes down to this, and I think of our industry in kind of three waves. We spent the first decade of the 2000s thinking there's so much business because employers weren't screening, and, and it was true. Then we hit 2010, and it kind of became, all right, everybody's kind of doing this. My growth is going to come from taking your clients. Now we're in the 2020s and we think, no, 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 not true. There are all these new products that are going to double our market. So if, if you're listening now, think about your shop. And, and like I said earlier, our audience is top heavy with 
C-suite business owners, VPs, how many truly new products are you selling or old products that your clients are ordering now that they never did before? I, and I think I know that answer. Here's my last point. Maybe I'm wrong. But for me to be wrong, what I just said has to be right. It was wide open in the 2000s. It was hand-to-hand combat in the 2010s. But in the 2020s, all we need to do is go and convince employers to double their spend. Time will tell, but I, I think you know where I'm placing my bets. Well, I couldn't, I couldn't disagree more. Uh, I know. And I want to bring, I'm going to bring Sherry into this conversation oh. because uh, I, I've known I Sherry. I love that for, we talk about this. <laughs> I've known Sherry for more than probably 20 years. And I remember, and I'm going to paraphrase this conversation, but we had a conversation 20 years ago, probably at the first uh, presentation you gave it at a PBS. And we were talking about the industry and the way it consolidates and the fragmentation and this and that. And you basically told me that it's textbook and, and the way that the industry is going to evolve uh, is going to be the way that every industry evolves. And there's consolidation through the fragmentation and everything else. And, and I said, I think this industry is different. And Sherry couldn't have been more right. Uh, the only difference is it took a little longer than probably everybody expected for all the consolidation to happen. Um, with that consolidation, you have product enhancement, which is things like the, the uh, post-employment monitoring. Those products exist. They were never marketed properly. Uh, and the that. need for them wasn't there the way it is today. And the, the industry isn't changing than the way it is today. So I think today we're ripe for a massive change there. And I think the winds are blowing in that direction. But I want to hear from Sherry and see what she thinks about yeah. that. Yeah, it's funny. And, um, you know, when you look at the, you know, just taking the domestic market, the 5 billion pre-employment and the 4 billion post-employment. Um, yeah, Kevin, I think you're probably safe for not streaking through a conference. For a couple of years anyways. In, in the near, in the near <laughs> yeah. term, at least. But I think we're all safe then, Sherry. Yeah. <laughs> let's let's be honest. Okay. Um, but, but, I mean, I'm not an operator, obviously. I'm an advisor to the industry. So I, I, listen to the things that are said in the market and, and, and in the conferences. And I feel like this post-employment monitoring has been talked about for a really yeah. long time. Yeah. And, um, okay, let's agree that that's a, you know, that's a market potential. Um, I struggle to uh, see how with the current business model that it's really going to turn into the $4 billion market. Now, could, you know, Jason, you brought up Checker, could a company like Checker or some of the um, more kind of, you know, data automated focused people that, um, you know, could you set up, hey, these are my, you know, I've hired these people, these, if they're in this class, I want this type of monitoring going on every six months. So someone's not actively managing that, does that open up? the opportunity a little bit. I, I could see that. I struggle to see the 4 billion. Yeah, maybe that's a five-year horizon where you, you know, the industry has to evolve in order to get to that. Um, and we'll talk, we obviously have uh, much of the time to talk about sort of M&A and consolidation and where's it going. And, you know, there've been deals every year. There'll be continue to be deals. Um, but I think it's going to be driven by the larger tech players, maybe some of the mid-sized tech players that have private equity funding that are oriented more towards the technology side than the, you know, sort of pure, you know, CRA focused approach that can open up that um, market. And what I think will happen is that when that market opens, everybody's going to end up benefiting because it's going to, it's going to build that market. And that means some of the smaller and mid-sized players are also going to be able to take advantage of it. Yeah, I, I think yep. there's two core beliefs in our space. And I think, I think there's only room for one of them to be true. And one is Jason's argument, which, which I agree with in concept. I, I really do. I do think there are new and exciting products. I do think there's new opportunities. I do think there's disruption. But at the end of that, that has to turn into a dollar. There has to be an equation at the end of it. So that's kind of one parallel belief in our space. The other is... How, how 20 years, this is a commodity business. This is a race to the bottom. And I don't necessarily believe in that, but that is a prevailing opinion in our space. I can't make enough money. I can't take enough margin. I'm being ground to the ground, you know, on price. So for all these things to happen, again, 
we need to double the size and people have to buy twice as much as they're buying now. Only one of those two things can be true. I'm in the middle. I don't believe either of these um, are a hundred percent true, but you know, th those are the conversations we're having. And I don't see how both of those beliefs can coexist. Guys, I know we got to move on to our, our, our yep. next slide and our next topic. I'm just going to throw something out on pricing though, Kevin, I'm going to say to you that I think this consolidation and, and, and this uh, environment um, with costs going up, I think we are going to see price increases in this industry for the first time in a while uh, coming up very soon. Um, maybe that's a different co uh, topic of conversation for a different webinar, but I do, I see that happening. Um, so maybe that fills some of the gap. Um, so, you know, we, we've danced around the $13 billion question, well, where did we get that assessment from? And it's from the news we've all been seeing over the last few months. Uh, First Advantage has officially gone public. Uh, I believe that that took place in June, towards the tail end of June. Sterling has announced plans to go public. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, that might be happening as soon as, uh, as later this month. Does that sound right? Uh, sometime this fall. Okay. Um, and then we just saw something recently uh, that suggested higher right might not be too far behind. Um, so, uh, Sherry, I'm going to uh, turn to you first. What does this mean for the industry? Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's funny. H historically, obviously, there have been, take first advantage as an example, there have been public companies that have been public, been not, you know, taken private, have gone public again. Um, there has not been a huge public uh, market in this industry. I think if you put, you know, these three names up there and um, one could argue that that's the next logical step for Checker as well when you've got a you know four billion dollar valuation. Um, I think with three or four companies that are public, um, you know, you know, kind of what, what what does it mean? I mean, I think a public company has to deliver growth. They have to deliver year over year, short term and long term growth in order to stay appropriately valued. So I think what's going to happen here is you can do growth organic. So you can develop the market that we've been talking about, or it could be through acquisitions. So if they're valued at, I'm going to use easy numbers, um, 10 times earn, you know, EBITDA, and they can acquire a business for you know, five times, or they're valued at 15 times, and they want to acquire a business at eight times, you use the numbers they can grow and increase their, um, you know, increase their market share, increase their market cap and valuation to get the return to the investors. But I think what that means is incredible pressure for growth, which I think will be beneficial for consolidation. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think you're going to see, you're going to see checker next and you could see accurate after that. Um, I think that you're going to see a lot of companies going public and, uh, you know, it's going to trickle down uh, to, to the mid-sized companies. Some of them will see growth because of it, because some of these companies are growing too fast. Um, but my biggest question for you, Sherry, is is why? Why are they doing it? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, so you take someone like a, you know, we'll take first advantage because they obviously went public. So they were for years owned by a private equity firm and a large private equity firm because they're, a, a decent company. So when STG was looking to get out of their investment, because private equity firms have a have an actual time horizon for returning value to their investors, you know, there's a couple of options when you're as big as first advantage. One is to go public. The other is to um, transact up market to a larger private equity firm. That's what STG did when they owned first advantage. So same thing. I think really what it comes out of, we all, maybe not everybody, but if we pay attention to what's going on in the public equities markets, it's, I mean, it's been strong. So if you combine that with, um, you know, trying to private equity firm, create a return to my investors, I mean, it's a right market. Strong equity markets right now allows the private equity firm to get a great return to their investors for first advantage. So I think it's it's certainly market-based, you know, is the market continue to be as robust as it is? I mean, I think if we get a pullback or a correction, um, you might see, you know, maybe Sterling holds off and doesn't actually go, you know, go public, but it's a ripe time to go public 
not just for background screening market, you know, companies, but yeah. for, for a lot of companies. I, I, I love listening to this conversation. I, I, I love what we get to do, right? Cause we get to look and talk and network and learn. Um, you were, Jason, Nick and I have talked about this, you know, we're twice as plugged in on the outside because we're not a threat to anyone. We get to, we get to learn and advise in a safe space. I, I talked to one CRA owner about a week ago who said he loved competing against companies that have taken private equity money or, or a publicly traded company because he gets to tell end users, you're not the customer anymore. You're the product. And, and a publicly traded or a PE back company, they're probably saying, whatever, I'm going to use my financial might to expand and hire and develop in tech. And, and I'm just going to grind you into the ground. So it, it's really interesting to watch this play out and, and what the decisions of, of buyers are. Yeah. yeah, and I think I, that's a, I think that's a great point. And I, I know one of the will ultimately get to the Q and A's. I did sort of scan it, but you know, I I do think that the consolidation and the activities provides opportunities for some of the small and mid-sized players because if you focus on yeah. customer service and delivering, you're going to show up where some of the other companies may not show up. Yeah, I wrote no, down what. Th- oh, go ahead, Jason. I, 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 I was just going to say they can be successful, but it depends on how you how you define success. Yeah. Um, if a small and medium sized company knows where they want to fit into the world and they don't want to ever be more than, you know, five, 10 million in revenue, like they're successful. They're making exactly. money, they're a lifestyle business, and they're very, very happy. But unless you take private equity or take significant investment in this in this industry, it's going to be very difficult to get over the 40 to 50 million dollar uh, uh, hump. You just can't do it. You need capital to grow. You need it. I don't think it takes you too long. Can't. That's that's it. It takes you too long. That's yeah. yeah. Um, you know, look, I I wrote down a few questions that I think will be on the minds or should be on the minds of CRAs when they think about these companies going public. By the way, I'm all for it. I think these companies are great. I think they're going to continue to do a good job. Um, but here are a couple uh, important questions that I that I, I think need to be asked. I don't know that we're going to have questions or answers to these questions today. Will being public make these companies more rigid in the way that they do business? That's my first question. Uh, they are going to be under a, a tight um, microscope. Uh, there's going to be a lot of scrutiny. Um, frankly, there already has been, but I imagine that that's going to get ratcheted up even more. Uh, that's number one. Uh, the other thing is, do these companies go on autopilot with the $5 billion TAM? Because in my mind, that is already almost fulfilled. So can they, um, can they still uh, grow in that market or are they solely relying on these other markets to grow? And so my question is, can they walk and chew gum at the same time? Can you do both of those things? Can you cover your base and then go after those new markets um, uh, with, without any hiccups. And then well, Nick, let me just interject real quick before you get to your third one. I mean, yeah, one, one of the pieces of news that we forgot, uh, that we forgot to mention today, and it's also due to checker there, you know, the, the fourth bucket we had there was identity and checker yesterday announced a deal with yeah. clear, you know, the, the airport screeners, like they are thinking outside the box. That's a whole new market that was never available to the background screening industry before. And there are other markets like it. So I think the answer to your second question is, those markets are going to uh, produce themselves and our other screeners are going to be able to compete in that sandbox. Yeah. And, and I, and personally, I'm, I'm as bullish on identity as I am bearish on post-hire monitoring. I, I think that's a great comment, Jason. Okay. Uh, anybody else have anything on this uh, slide? Yeah. I mean, the one thing I would say is your question about, you know, will it make them more rigid? I mean, I think that the industry that you all, you know, compete in is, you know, kind of by default, it is a compliance-based industry. And if you, you can get into a lot of trouble, we've seen it, we've seen companies get into trouble if they're um, not doing things right from a compliance standpoint. So in that respect, I think the, the pure going public piece doesn't change the, that, you know, kind of operational. You do have some, um, maybe a little bit more, uh, you know, maybe a little bit more rigid because of some of the, you know, regular reporting and how you're disclosing things. But I think the core business, because you're a compliance-based business to begin with, I think that doesn't change that much, whether you're private or public, assuming you're doing it the right way to begin with. Right. Okay. 
All right. Well, uh, I think we can all agree that uh, the M&A activity in this space is not just reserved for CRAs, uh, but we're also seeing it um, significantly in the supply chain. Um, I, I think that we might have built this slide a little bit too early um, because since <laughs> right. the time that we started building this slide out, uh, not only has Equifax acquired uh, APRIS or has an agreement to acquire APRIS, uh, Meridian Link, this is an older one, acquired Taz about a year ago. Uh, but even since that time, Verisys has now been um, acquired, uh, as has Samba Safety. Um, so the supply chain is most uh, assuredly rolling up. Um, I've got a, a number of different things I want to talk about. I'm going to kick it off. I'll start by just giving a huge round of applause to APRIS. Um, uh, what they have done in three years by yep. getting into this space growing it and selling it as a $1.8 billion company um, to Equifax is nothing short of remarkable. Um, yep. And so I, I just think, you know, they did a masterful job. Um, it's a big deal. Um, and, um, you know, hopefully it works out for everybody. Um, I, Kevin, Jason, you want to chime in here? Yeah, you know, Nick, where, where, I, where I share uh, your commendation, <laughs> Um, of APRIS, I think is also with a bit of a, you know, eyes wide open. Um, and, and I think for a lot of us listening, you know, this is the slide where it gets a little juicy. And I, I'm personally fascinated to see what decisions people ultimately make. You know, it, it's no secret. This isn't, this isn't about Equifax. It's about Equifax owns the work number. And if we did a survey of respected organizations, I mean, I think the work number is somewhere between an airline and a used car salesman. I'm not criticizing, just a lot of people don't like them. Um, and, and I'm not privy to any inside info on the deal, but like smart people do these things. And I have to imagine baked in is an assumption that some of that business will go away just because of the work number. Um, my, my, you know, one more point I'll make. I, I've talked to people whose, their reaction is pretty visceral, not mean or angry, but very clear headed. They're like, yeah, I'm out. Uh, I, I advocate a more reasoned approach. I podcasted about this a week ago. Um, I think I use the example of Apple and Samsung. On one side of the hallway in the corporate building, they do billions of dollars worth of work and partnerships. On the other side of the hallway, they do billions of dollars in lawsuits. I, I just advocate run the best business you can. And once you make the best decisions with your head, then go make a decision with your heart. Um, I, you know, I do think if you loved Aparis yesterday, the fact that Equifax bought them doesn't mean you shouldn't love them tomorrow. But I, I mean, we just know that people are, are making that decision. It's guilt by association. So that's that's my yeah. I would say that, you know, what Sherry said earlier, once you're either owned by the public markets or private equity, um, you, you have you have to grow. And yeah. all these companies have to grow. And you're gonna see everybody everybody that's in this current supply chain is being looked at right now. They have to be, because all these companies have to tag on some of these acquisitions. Um, so I think you're going to see a landscape in the next 12 to 18 months that looks completely different in 12 to 18 months as far as what the supply chain looks like. Um, my other thoughts, I, I wrote a blog on it last week. It's, it's on our screening news blog. And, and I do believe in the next, it's not going to happen overnight, but five, seven years from now, the background check is going to look completely different. It's going to look a lot like a credit report. It's going to be a lot like what Equifax's core business is. And that's delivering quick, easy, instant uh, uh, data to make decisions. And I think they're going to do the same thing with employment. Yeah. Hey, Jason, I would, I would add, and I, I read your blog and I, I, you know, everything resonated with me. And, um, earlier today, uh, I had something come across my inbox and it was, uh, um, an interview that the CEO of Equifax did, um, on, on the acquisition, but, you know, kind of the takeaway to that is that, you know, he really viewed, um, you know, kind of Equifax as going under a transformation and the focus that they are going to be placing on the whole pre-employment um, marketplace is very strong. And, you know, they are incredibly well capitalized now touch a number of different components in the supply chain. And I, I, I guess I couldn't agree more. It, it sort of resonated even more after reading some of your comments that, yeah, you know, I'd like to fast forward 24 months and really see how this is going to play out because it's going to have some changes in the industry. Yep. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I, I think it's brilliant. Um, the, the acquisition, not Jason's block. 
yeah, I, I, yeah, look, the, the, the elephant in the room that nobody is actually saying, but that we've been hearing a lot about is CRAs are certainly concerned um, that, that their new competitor has just been launched um, with this acquisition. Um, time will only tell. It seems like it's setting up that way, but you never know. Um, a, a couple other observations that I have is, you know, overall, especially since the pandemic, um, more CRAs have shifted back to the supply chain. And this is a very, very important issue uh, for CRAs um, because I think the pandemic also showed them that perhaps the supply chain is more sophisticated than they ever thought that it was. And that frankly, they perform operations better than most CRAs do. Um, and so um, it is going to be very important for CRAs to monitor what's going on um, and, to, and to build very strong relationships with the supply chain. Um, many of the supply chain players have invested in technology, automation, efficiency. Um, and so I think it's going to be a while until the pendulum starts to switch back where companies start taking more work in-house, if it ever happens. Um, one thing for important for CR is to know is that there are going to be fewer choices if the supply chain starts rolling up, uh, but uh, it just creates an opportunity to have stronger partners. Uh, and the one uh, piece of advice that I have for CRAs um, is something, uh, a bit of a lesson that I learned when I watched companies like um, Oracle, for instance, buy up the ATS space and buy up a, bu a bunch of point-to-point uh, -point solutions. The idea that they had in mind was, well, they're already buying Oracle from me, my, you know, whatever uh, it is that I'm selling on that end. Why can't they buy applicant tracking system? Why can't they buy onboarding? Why can't they buy all of these things? Um, ultimately, it didn't work so well. And the reason it didn't work so well is that point-to-point -point solutions proved to be a lot better than what the whole umbrella ended up being. So I think for CRAs, they have to be very careful um, to make sure that they continue to buy best in breed uh, and, and not get locked into this whole one-stop shop mentality. And I don't think most will. Well, that was either groundbreaking or- Well, let's or, go to the next. I mean, wasn't. we're going to run out of time, yeah. so we might as well okay. keep going. All right. All right, Sherry, this is your baby. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think that, um, you know, kind of we all know that over the years, there have been a number of private equity investments into the, into the space. And um, this goes back to the early 2000s, um, you know, but, you know, sort of the statistic, when I looked at it, which is every year since 2014, there has been a platform investment made, meaning, a private equity firm has said, I believe in you, you're my platform, and I think you can grow, um, has been a platform investment into the, um, you know, in for a background screening company. Um, and, and I think not surprisingly, I, you know, kind of a little bit different than the, you know, kind of the public firms who have the short-term and long-term pressure to, you know, kind of create growth. Private equity firms have a typical holding period of three to seven years which means they want to come in, <laughs> grow top line, improve bottom line, and get returns. So when you look at that, one way to do that is, again, is to buy other companies. And if you um, take a look at the transaction activity since 2014, you know, more than half of it has been driven by private equity-backed companies. So I think that it's important when private equity is looking at the space, I think it's a it's a um, it's a it's a strong belief that um, or it's a strong indication that you call it smart money. If you if you think private equity is smart money, I mean they 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 certainly put themselves out there like that. But it's a it's an indication that they believe that the growth can be there, and whether that's consolidation play, efficiencies, or tapping into that you know, that untapped market of, you know, whatever it was, 7 billion. Um, you know, I, I think that there are people and um, there are people that make a living by getting a return by helping companies grow that believe in this industry. Yep. Yep. I totally agree. And well that said. actually resonates with another point that we 
didn't talk about what iCubed is. And iCubed helps companies do all these things. And how do we do this? Well, one of the things that we've learned along the way, and the three of us with you know probably 85, 90 years of experience in the industry, we've worked on all of these deals in one one way, some way, shape or form. Um, you know, whether it's advising on the private equity side or the sell side or the buy side, um, I know that I've you know personally been involved with most of these and Nick and, and Kevin have too. Um, so we've learned along the way from these deals. And that's some, some of the things that I, that I keep advisors can help uh, our clients with in the future. Kevin, anything from you on this? I'm good. Okay. Can't say it better. All right. Let's keep moving on. By the way, the logos that you see here don't represent all of the deals that took place. Uh, I couldn't fit all of those logos into one slide, similar to the private equity companies that I'm showing you here. There are many more that have invested in the space. We just wanted to give you an understanding of who some of the larger ones were. Um, uh, but uh, again, this was not intended to be an all-inclusive list. Yeah, so you know, maybe, maybe a thought, yeah, a thought I have as, as, um, as we bring Sherry in again on this slide, you know, for a number of years, we all kind of look out even going back 10, 15, 20 years ago and like, all right, I think we're a year or two away from a big thing and a, you know, in a wave and then, okay, a couple of years and a couple of years, maybe this wave feels the biggest because we're in it. Um, but this kind of feels like the wave we've all been waiting for. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, I, I think that's an interesting, um, uh, perspective, Kevin. Um, you know, when I look at the deals that I've tracked and the number of deals that I've tracked, I mean, there have been waves that happened in the early 2000s and you know we're coming out you know coming out of a massive equity crash there's waves that happened coming out of 2019 2000 you know i'm sorry 2009 10 and 11 and then a wave happened again and i think that um when it, well let me say this i think companies certainly are performing better today than they were a year ago right i mean obviously you couldn't have predicted what was going to happen with COVID. You couldn't, and depending on what your customer base was, um, you could have suffered or performed better. I mean, it just, I think it really came down to, you know, geographically, where were your customers and what industries were you in? And that dictated it. But you, when you're kind of coming on the outside of it, um, I think every time there's been a big market impact, it's led to a consolidation. Um, and you've had that wave afterwards. Um, and I think that, you know, you talk about the, you say sort of three reasons sellers may want to sell. I mean, as we were all talking about, I mean, you, you have people that just got destroyed during COVID. So there's a little bit of a, I don't call it desperation. You know, I have to sell. You yeah. have people that made it through COVID and are doing okay, but they're like, oh my God, I do not want to go through that again. I've lived through some downturns in the industry. It's just, I mean, it's, it's physically and mentally exhausting to manage a business through that. And then you have companies that have done well and are doing well, and you see what's going on in the markets and valuations are ticking up again. And so they're opportunistic. They're like, why wouldn't I sell now? If there's buyers, why wouldn't I sell? So You've got different types of sellers out there, but I think um, I think coming out of COVID, coming out of a market shock, and looking at both companies going public and private equity-backed companies, I think it's poised um, for for a pretty big wave. Um, Nick, I do too. Yeah, Nick, Jason, you and I have talked a lot uh, lately about the COVID bounce, right? Yep. And we're factoring that into our report, and I. I said a lot last year i'm like the only way in 20 the only way 2021 is really good is if 2020 is really bad because nobody's going to rescreen the person they furloughed for 60 days and is sitting on their couch growth comes from that person going to get in another job and the company needing to backfill that's where new screens come from so oh my god and yes so and i'm sorry for interrupting yeah, you okay. but yes so in addition to uh an unbelievable amount of job creation right now everybody has seen the whole uh this concept of of the the uh the great resignation Yes. Um, and that is uh, people are resigning. And then the other thing that uh, is also kind of an untold story in this market is that um, a lot more jobs are becoming on-demand jobs. And so, you know, somebody might want to be an Uber driver. They also might want to be a Lyft driver. They also at the same time might want to do DoorDash. Yeah. Um, and so, 
that is fueling a lot of the volume in this industry right now. I'm really excited. Yeah, I'm really excited to see what 2022 looks like. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's depressed compared to 2021, not because the economy went in the tank, but because things have leveled out and, the, and, and dust has settled. So 2021 is, if 2022 is smaller than 2021, that doesn't surprise me. I think, well, before I get into what I want to say next, I, I will tell you that I think with um, all the on-demand jobs and the people that are working, you know, four or five of them, we're already seeing with Hire Right, they came out with a new product for Uber and, and, and Lyft where they can kind of share those yeah. results. Yeah. Um, these, these technology companies aren't stupid. They have to deliver value as well as, as grow. And, and they see that as a problem, uh, the, the portability of that background check for the on-demand market. They're going to solve that problem without somebody having to pay for five background checks. I guarantee it. Yep. It's going to happen soon. So I don't know if that's going to be such a spike that everybody thinks it's going to be. Um, but that kind of leads me into some of the questions that have been posed um, on the Q&A are about valuations. And it's a good time to ask that question um, to Sherry. I, you know, what, the things that I've seen uh, I've seen valuations anywhere or, or deals anywhere between 4X and 10X, you know, on average. Um, what most uh, CRAs don't realize is they're just not that special. Um, unless you have your own platform uh, that, that is beyond somebody else that somebody can use to build you from as a platform company and, and do tag-ons, you don't have anything but a client list. And I'm sorry to say that, but it's true. And you have to look at when a company values you they're valuing you on the synergies, what they can make on your business um, and, and how much they can grow that book of business. Um, beyond that, there's not much else they need. I know you have great people and I know you've got great processes. I know you have great marketing, but they're not going to adapt that. They're going to adapt theirs. So I, let, let's talk a little bit about that, Sherry. What do you think we're seeing with valuation? Do you think they're going to go up? Do you think they're going to go down? Um, and I know we'll have anomalies. I know we're going to see 20x and 25x. It's happened. It's going to continue to happen. Those anomalies, but in the you know for the grand scheme of things, what's what's going to happen? Yeah, no, I, th I think it's a you know that that is the big question, right? I mean, I think that um, you know during well during 2020, I mean, I think there was no surprise that it was difficult to you know sort of for deals to get done and reach agreement on. What, what are we really valuing? How quick is revenue going to come back? I mean, there were a lot of buyers that, uh, or a lot of people that said, I'm interested in buying. What they really were interested in doing was taking over the customer base and paying a little bit as, you know, as the, you know, if, if the customer stayed with them, I'll give you a little bit. And they're like, you know, the sellers are like, well, why, you know, why would I do that? Um, you know, but I think when it comes to, uh, you know, valuations, it's funny because I, you know, I tend to bring everything back. And I think, Jason, the way that you just said it is sort of the set right way, which is, you know, you bring it back to sort of what sort of cash flows are you going to be able to bring to a buyer, right? I mean, it's people like to quote revenue multiples, um, I think, because there's more revenue multiples out there to point to. Um, but at the end of the day, you're actually bringing it back to what sort of, you know, what sort of cash flows can you bring? Um, and, uh, and a buyer is not going to pay you, pay a multiple for every single synergy that they bring to the table. I mean, so you got to quit, you know, you got to sort of figure it out and restate your financials to come up with, hey, what's a, what's a normalized level of profitability? I yeah, think the, 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 first, the first person on the, the, the Q&A list, interesting, because I think, you know, almost broke it out I'd probably put another threshold in there, but you know, the real small players, the under 2 million player, $2 million in revenue, and then the two to five, five to 10, over 10. And you might say over 50 or beyond, because it's really the over 50 or beyond that get the outsized multiple. Tip, typically there could be others and all that. But I, I, think I you know, I, I would say, you're going to say one more thing. I would say that on the low end that you said four to five, I mean, I, it, depending on the, 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 specifics of the company and company concentration and what platform they are, what's the likelihood of revenue to come over. I mean, I'm seeing three to four, not four to five. Yeah. So it's a, it's, it's a little bit less, but I, I, I agree with you. I think it's high single digits. If you're you know, mid to high single digits, if you're below 10 million, I think if you're above 10 million, a lot of other factors come into play. You might be able to get into something that's double digit. Yeah, but, so, but, so many. This is yeah. not one size fits all. 
For sure. Right. And I think CRAs for a long time, I mean, you always heard about these incredible, the one I remember the most is everybody talking about the deal when ADP bought um, Avert. Uh-huh. And everybody talked about the fact that they had, and my numbers might be wrong at this point, but I think it was a $20 million business that sold for 4X revenue. And everybody in the background screening industry thought that they were worth that amount of money. They wanted to sell. It doesn't work that way. You know, we know of of larger CRAs that are on the market right now, um, you know, that are above that $50 million threshold or maybe right around the $50 threshold. And they're not getting any offers on their business. It's all about what kind of company they are and what their expectations are for what they get paid out. So many of these thoughts are, are just so salient. Um, I have really enjoyed the last couple of minutes listening to this discussion, and especially for the smaller, the mid-sized companies. You know, it, it's human nature. You're selling your baby. You're selling your career. It's very emotional. All the seller wants to do is use their money to make more money in the future. Um, and, and that's something that I, I think it's overlooked a little too often. Great chatter on this slide. Real quickly before we go on, Sherry, I've got a question for you. So there's obviously been some kind of rush, uh, not just in this industry, but in, in, in others, that 2001 is the year to do a deal because everybody's worried about what happens with the tax situation in the next year. How much are you seeing that factoring into, in, into the deals? And do you expect M&A to come to a halt next year when if if the tax rules uh, adjust? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. I think that um, the the answer to that is um, it comes up almost in every conversation I have with someone who's contemplating selling and yep. saying, if I want to sell in the near term, um, isn't this my window? Um, because I might need to hold it for four years, you know, to get out of assuming. Yeah. whether there's a change in administration or whatever, that, that might be an anomaly. I think that the, 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 the bigger question in whether uh, deals stop in 2022 is what are the specifics of any potential tax change? I think if, it, if, if capital gains goes away and it actually essentially goes to the highest ordinary income rates, that has a massive impact on what a seller's net proceeds would be. Yep. If instead uh, it goes to 20%, 25%, like, you know, there are smaller increments that I think may have a small impact on MA deal activity, but really doesn't bring it to a halt. I think the only thing that brings it to a halt is if they do away with capital gains and it is raised all the way up to ordinary sure. rates. Sure. I mean, and so to a halt. There's still going to be the seller who has to sell for whatever reasons, and they'll still go ahead and transact. Um, but it'll be, you know, it'll be much more painful. It's going to destroy the private markets if it happens. I, I ultimately, I hope it doesn't. <laughs> we'll yeah. see. It's going to destroy what markets did you say, Jason? The private markets. It's going to destroy oh, private, private equity, venture capital, I, I, all that stuff. Got yes. it. I, I I misheard you. I thought you said product markets, and I'm like, nope. oh, that's a new category for me. Um, okay. All right, uh, great. So um, we are coming uh, close to the end. I will say that uh, uh, Jason has been very diligent in the Q&A panel um, thus far and has been answering questions as they come in. Um, We're certainly available to take more questions. Um, As we start to wrap up here, um, we wanted to be able to provide some practical advice um, to those that are on the call about what they can do with their businesses. By the way, there's nothing wrong with holding your business and, and, and operating it. Um, so I don't think any of us are advocating that every CRA should go and sell their business today. Um, uh, a couple of pieces of advice. Um, uh, Sherry, we'll start with you. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think that um, I tend to be a cash flow and profits driven person, right? So I think the, the last bullet is the focus on developing a profitable business strategy. I think profits is important, are, are important. I mean, I, I, I think that I have seen you know, I've seen a $5 million CRA that's throwing off more than $2 million of bottom line cash. And I have seen a 10 million uh, revenue CRA that's throwing off 200,000. And one might argue, hey, I'm a $10 million, you know, CRA, I've, I've got double the amount of revenue that's coming in. But the reality is, is you've got to figure out how to 
drive a profitable business strategy. And if you're not at 10% operating profits, focus on getting to 10%. If you're above 10%, focus on getting to 15%. And if you're at 15%, focus on getting to 20%. I think there obviously is a cap at which you can, you know, where how much profits that you can throw off. But I think that's where your mind should be thinking of what am I doing so that I can be more profitable? Yeah, I, I love how you how you lay that out, Sherry, especially, you know, with the specifics and, and some numbers behind it. Uh, I, I, too, I'm a, I'm a big blocking and tackling guy. All of this stuff is super interesting. It's all exciting, but we still have to take this back into our business day to day and try and run the best shop that we that we have. One thing I think of here, we fall victim to a lot, um, and I'll use LinkedIn as an example. You know, we see everybody's best version of themselves. It's easy to doubt ourselves. It's easy to start chasing shiny things because we think everybody else is smarter than us or has a, has a better idea. We lose confidence and, you know, pick a position, pick a side, execute as well as you can. When you course correct, you know, and you keep lurching, you end up worse than before because not only are you right where you started, you've lost the only thing you can't get back, which is time. So, um, Sherry, very, very well said. Thanks for, for sharing. Yep. Jason, you um, have uh, one that you want yeah, to focus I mean, on? I have Nick, one I remember sure. me, me, you and, and Les, uh, our partner Les had a conversation 15 years ago and we were, you know, we, we sold five years ago, but, you know, we started kind of entertaining the concept, just the fact that we would even, that could even be our future a long time ago. And I remember we went, I went to Dan Shoemaker. Uh, he was running uh, business development for hiring at the time. And I asked him, like, you know, if you're ever going to sell the business, you know, what do you do to get the best value out of it? And he basically, it, it, I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, you know, differentiate yourself. You know, what is special about you that's going to make somebody want to buy you? Uh, and in this, in this market, in this industry, it's very difficult to differentiate yourself other than marketing and, and great, you have great customer service and this and that. But what are you really offering the buyer? So when you're looking to sell your company, you got to kind of look in the mirror and see if you were buying you, how do you make it work? How do you make money at it? What would you pay for it? What's special about it? And how are you going to go to your investors and say, this is a good acquisition. And that's how you build your, your, your future from there. Yeah. And from that, you'll, you'll hopefully see some, some benefits out of that and, and, and the price that you get for your business. Yeah. Well, I wrote down uh, in, in kind of looking at this slide, one of my favorite lines uh, from any movie is get busy living or get busy dying. Yeah. Um, and so when it comes to differentiating your brand, if you're not doing it, you're getting busy dying. Um, you need to do that. If you're not investing in strategic planning, you're getting busy dying. Um, if you are not uh, being profitable or, or taking steps to, uh, to become more profitable, you're getting busy dying. Um, and so I think that these are uh, important things that you can't just ignore. You need to be deliberate about them. Um, and one other piece that I'll, I'll share, and Jason, you brought up uh, some conversations we'd have with Les, but you know, it's okay to understand that you might be selling your business at some time in the near future. All of your decisions should not be based on the fact that you are selling that business. Operate a strong business, grow your business as best as you can. When the time is right, you'll sell, but your main focus should always be on growing the business, taking care of your clients, becoming profitable. And I think that that's, that's how you win. Hey, hey, Nick, just to add to that, and I, I think what you said just you know, has sort of triggered, triggered something in my mind, which is, you know, you should be running and operating your business as if you're not going to sell it. So make right. the decisions to create value. And you might make a bad decision and invest in something that doesn't turn out. That's not going to destroy your bit. That's not going to destroy your business on a sale because you can adjust for those things. Yeah. And a buyer will adjust those. But if you run your business, stripping out the investment, stripping out the people so that it's, you know, it's a host of cards waiting to fall down because you haven't done the right things because you're trying to maximize cash flow. Boy, that's a, that's a recipe for disaster. Yeah. And yep. buyers aren't stupid. They're just yeah. not, they're going to see it. Yeah. Oh, sure. Okay. All right. Um, uh, Kevin, uh, any last words? I know you wanted to uh, thank our sponsor for yeah, sure. Yeah. So, you know, a, a big thank you again to qualification check, um, check out their website, learn more about how their global capabilities and London presence really puts them at the epicenter of a world that's getting a lot smaller. We have a lot of good examples of that today for sure. Okay. 
All right, well, let's let that be the final word. Um, uh, everybody greatly appreciate uh, the exchange today. I think that this was, uh, at least from, from my standpoint, I think we probably answered a lot of the questions people had. Um, this was relevant content. So, and Sherry, special thank you to you for joining us. Um, it's good to have you uh, on, on the team here and uh, we'll look forward to hearing more from you in the near future. And I also say that uh, we're looking forward to seeing everybody uh, who's coming to the PBSA conference next week. It's been a long time since we've all been together. Looking forward to seeing everybody and definitely stop by the lobby bar or wherever they set up our TVs to watch the NFL games when you arrive to the hotel. I, and, and I will not be streaking naked. I will not. So <laughs> don't don't cancel your registration or your plane. Not ticket. yet. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> all right, everybody. Have a good day. Thank you very much. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Thanks. guys.